Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It clearly has caused the justices um, heartburn. The Supreme Court has voted to strike down the Roe v. Wade decision. That's according to an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito circulated inside the court and obtained by my colleagues, Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past week, you've probably heard about it. I think it has changed the court, um, probably in a way that can't be altered. Hey, Josh, <laughs> this is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Peter Canellis. So they do want it to be just a casual conversation. I guess that's what it sounds like it's going to be. I wrote a book recently, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. They say that history is written by the victors, but not in the case of the most famous dissenter on the Supreme Court. Buy it, read it. It has a lot to say about the events of the last week. Harlan served, of course, over 100 years ago. Instead of writing about history, we've been watching history being made right now. The draft opinion is a full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights and a subsequent 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that largely maintained the right. What does this mean for the future of conservative legal strategy? What does this mean for the Supreme Court and for Chief Justice John Roberts? Traditionally, the Supreme Court has put a premium on, if not unanimity, then having a, a very strong majority when it comes through with major cases. You know, we've heard stories of people like, you know, Felix Frankfurter working behind the scenes to try to make sure the Brown versus Board of Education decision was nine to nothing. You know, it's been almost a you know, an act of faith within the Supreme Court that the court is stronger when it speaks with, with one voice. One of the things that was sort of striking to me here is you had five justices, a narrow one vote majority, essentially saying from the start, the five of us are prepared to issue this incredibly divisive, dramatic change in policy and overruling one of the biggest Supreme Court cases of the last hundred years. And they were sort of implicitly saying they don't care whether it's a narrow five to four decision. Do you think we're going to be heading into a period where if, you know, if one of the conservatives drops dead tomorrow and the Democrats uh, put forward a, a liberal justice, next year they're going to flip the other way? I mean, is that is this that what we're entering into in the in the Supreme Court where it's such a ideologically divided operation that that cases will be flipping back and forth uh, with with great speed? Well, I mean, that's one of the concerns that I've heard expressed about some of the court reform proposals that Democrats have put forward in the last couple of years is that, you know, however political the institution is right now, you're just making it more political and you're setting up a situation where justices would be coming and going that at a certain point it starts to seem like a, a, a mini legislature, you know, rather than a court, you know, are you going to have 15 justices switching out in different uh, different panels? Look, I mean, a big part of this opinion is this issue of how seriously precedent should be taken uh, and whether the court has some special obligations to not blithely overturn things that previous justices and previous courts have done. And that's something that all the justices have paid lip service to at their confirmation hearings. But when you look at this opinion, you know, it does look like, at least with respect to some justices, you could argue that was largely lip service. Many of the criticisms I've seen in the last couple of days of conservative justices for being aligned with this uh, opinion is that they said in their hearings that, you know, Roe v. Wade was settled law. And now all of a sudden there's lines in here saying, you know, 
well, it's it's less important that it be settled than that it be settled right. And therefore, we're going to flip the whole thing over after uh, 50 years. So I do think it's possible. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time, as Alito points out, there have been periods where the court has has wavered on significant issues, maybe not quite as significant as this one, but over a short period of time. I think he points to an opinion about saluting the flag in, in public schools where the court ruled um, that kids had to do it and then three years later changed its mind and said kids don't have to do it. Um, so that does happen. But I would also say Chief Justice John Roberts is someone that's been particularly concerned about that perception, right? I mean, there was only a couple years ago where he voted in a case and basically said, I am voting for a position, a legal position and legal principles that I don't, a legal conclusion that I don't agree with in this case. And I'm doing it because last year or the year before, we announced a, a decision. It was in the Texas um, case involving abortion and regulation of abortion clinics and, and rules that were put into place to try to you know, make it more difficult to get an abortion in Texas. And when the same issue came up in Louisiana, he was in the minority on the Texas case. And then he switched over and said, um, you know, we're going to strike down this Louisiana law because we previously struck down the Texas one. And and I don't agree with it, but that's what we need to do because of stare decisis and because of the um, importance that the court's precedents just not be flipped over from year to year. His colleagues don't seem as concerned about that. That's certainly clear from this draft opinion. Maybe some of them will get more concerned about it in the next month or two. Are they concerned? I mean, we know that when uh, Amy Coney Barrett went to the McConnell Center a couple of months ago, she said that politics has no place within the court framework. Justice Breyer wrote a book making the same point. Many of these justices have come out on the left and the right trying to say politics is incredibly wrong in the court. But you know that most people looking at this are going to say, wait a minute, uh, all of these judicial appointments were influenced by politics in the most naked, obvious way, abortion politics. And now this decision is being made by the Supreme Court. You know, who can who can possibly not see it as a political exercise? Right. I mean, look, as a reporter who covers the courts all the time, I take flack even sometimes when we say this judge was or justice was appointed by a Republican or appointed by a Democrat. There are hardcore uh, judges who are just like that is outrageous for you to even mention it. Uh, And as you say, even um, some liberal jurists like Justice Breyer will go out and give talks where they say, well, you know, 90 percent of our cases are decided, you know, 7-2 or unanimously. And so this notion that we're a great ideological divide down the middle is nonsense or whatever, you know. But then, of course, the question is, well, why do so many of the issues that seem to be top of the mind as opposed to, you know, tax cases or uh, obscure uh, contract principles why are so many of these highly controversial issues like abortion or guns always come out 5-4 or often come out 5-4 with justices who just happen to either have been appointed by one political party or another? It just it, it, it beggars belief that there isn't some role of politics there. And I think the answer is simply that the justices like to uh, take politics and rename it, which they call it ideology as opposed to politics or or judicial ideology or um, you know judicial approach, and they put different labels on it. But to those of us in the public, it looks a lot like politics by another name. Our friend Charlie Savage in the New York Times wrote a piece that that brought back a memory of mine from when I was uh, in the Boston Globe bureau chief, and in fact working with Charlie. When George uh, W. Bush tried to appoint Harriet Myers to the uh, Supreme Court, Harriet Myers was his White House counsel, somebody he had known from Texas. Uh, she was a respected member of the Texas Bar. Uh, she was somebody whose views on things like uh, Roe were just genuinely not known. Uh, but she was thought to be, you know, a thoughtful, moderate uh, woman of the law, you know, who who would uh, uh, proceed very cautiously on things. And much of the conservative movement turned on their own president, George W. Bush, saying, you know, how dare you nominate her? She's not remotely qualified and forced her out. And that became the seat that Sam Alito got leading to this. The reason I think that's an important story is that if people try to say, well, it isn't politics, it's ideology and all of that, what do you call the strategic decision to torpedo Harriet Myers and put Sam Alito, who everybody knew at that time 
with somebody who was a skeptic of Roe and had uh, acted on it as a, a lower court judge, had also uh, expressed deep skepticism about substantive due process without mentioning Roe uh, directly by name. Uh, he was called Scalito because he was thought to be so in line with Antonin Scalia, who was already on the record opposing abortion rights. So obviously people who preferred uh, Sam Alito as the nominee to Harriet Myers were basing that on their their views on, a, on abortion and pretending it was about their standing in the law. But really, well, so this is an important anecdote because it 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 shows what's troubling about the confirmation process and the way it's been really for the last 30 years. Right. That is totally, uh, totally right, Peter. And I, I mean, I do think that the people who thought uh, this was Scalito, you know, when they put uh, Alito up as the nominee and on the court actually turned out to like understate the case. Right. It turns out that Alito is far more conservative than Scalia ever was. I mean, Scalia uh, was known for having a civil libertarian streak where he would side uh, with criminal defendants. Uh, he had another opinion where he talked about DNA and was not a fan of DNA evidence. There's a bunch of Fourth Amendment stuff where I believe Scalia is the one who said, you know, uh, you can't use like a heat-seeking infrared camera to look into somebody's attic and stuff like this. And so he, uh, Scalia had that vein uh, of concern about certain issues related to um, civil liberties. It's a vein that Alito has never displayed on the court. I think Alito far and away is the justice who rules with law enforcement again and again and again. And really, it's stunning. I think maybe one case I can think of in the last 20 years where he has not sided um, with law enforcement. And so, yes, an extraordinarily um, conservative justice. And you were right. He is there in part to this weird historical contingency of Bush deciding he was going to make a you know, somewhat nepotistic pick of someone who was his White House counsel and the conservative movement going up in arms. The other thing I would say about that is part of the reason the conservative movement went up in arms is they feel really that they were in a once bitten, twice shy position. In other words, in the last years leading up to that nomination, they felt they had been abandoned by a bunch of Republican nominees. Uh, even people like Sandra Day O'Connor were seen as insufficiently um, supportive of the conservative agenda and of getting mushy once they got up on the court. David Souter would be another example. Basically, I think many people would have considered him a Democratic appointee in his last decade or so on the court, but he was a Republican appointee. And so when you talk to conservative legal activists over the past 20 to 30 years, they have become increasingly insistent that they don't just have winks and nods about uh, how these potential nominees or nominees are going to um, deal with the critical issues of the day in the light of conservatives, but they want pretty much rock-solid guarantees from people, and they've moved in the direction of insisting on nominees that provide those kinds of rock-ribbed conservative bona fides before they get the pick. But now we've talked a lot about the conservative movement, the, the, which is emblemized by the Federalist Society, which has credentialed a lot of these conservative judges and the the movement to uh, to get these people on the bench as opposed to people like Harriet Myers, who might be too wishy-washy for that movement. But isn't it true that the same thing has happened on the left, uh, that even a president like Joe Biden, who at one time in his life was pro-life, who is a religious Catholic, who has expressed uh, concerns about abortion, he was really uh, backed into a corner where he had to say, commit to appointing uh, judges and justices who would support abortion rights. Uh, so presumably, conservatives who are listening to this podcast are saying, you know, whatever you're saying about Alito and the process by which he was chosen, you could say the same thing about Elena Kagan and Ketanji Brown-Jackson and uh, other Democratic appointees, right? I, I think you could to a degree. I mean, I do think you've seen an increase in polarization among the people that follow the court over the past decade you end up with a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? I think the people on the left would say they're responding to the successes that the Federalist Society and others have had in shifting the ideological center of the court. You know, from the 70s and even into the beginning of the 80s, you had a Supreme Court um, which leaned to the left on a bunch of issues, even though you had the moderate Republicans, maybe the Rockefeller-type Republican there on the bench uh, doing those sorts of moderate rulings. And then 
as Reagan's nominees started to come in, then you had it shift in another direction. I think a lot of liberal legal activists would say that they are their stridency is reflective of the success that the Federalist Society had. And if you look at the timelines, you know, the Federalist Society started up, started doing their thing, and then it took a while for the left side of the legal spectrum and the legal activists, the law professoriat and so forth, to try to ramp up something similar, which became, you know, the American Constitution Society. You know, the, the people on the right would say, well, the left had control of the judiciary already, and we were just trying to get it more centrist. But from someone who covers the Supreme Court, I think you can just say there's no question that we've seen the needle move from moderate to conservative over the last 10 years in an unmistakable way. What do you think, when you say conservative, a lot of people say conservative means abortion, that abortion has been the big issue. You know, the Federalist Society, I think, in the minds of a lot of legal scholars, was a reaction to the more progressive decisions of the Warren court that they felt were going further than the country was prepared to go in terms of liberalizing the law. But it got its, the Federalist Society got its, got its political impetus from the sort of grassroots, visceral uh, anti-abortion movement, you know, largely working class, largely religious people in the central part of the country, largely, who uh, had very, very strong views on abortion. So now that Roe v. Wade seems to be on the verge of being overruled, the question becomes, does this conservative block of five justices feel like their mission is to unravel all of the Warren Court's uh, decisions? Or have they essentially won the day already uh, by defeating Roe v. Wade, and now the five of them are kind of free to move in different directions if they so choose? I mean, I've always felt that the goals of the Federalist Society were a little more complicated and that there were really two two different strains of thought there, right? Uh, one is, as you described, the social conservatism focused on Roe versus Wade, in many cases supported by either Catholics or evangelical Christians, and it is more of a working class um, movement. The other part of it, though, I think has been fueled more by people like the Koch brothers and other very wealthy business people uh, who have a different agenda uh, regarding the role of the federal government in the economic sector. Um, and we've seen the court working on that in decisions relating to uh, labor unions and regulation uh, and becoming increasingly bold in asserting its role to overrule federal agencies about what can and can't be regulated, about you know, can you say you're going to regulate greenhouse gases or not regulate greenhouse gases? This has always been a part of the Federalist Society mission. And I think if you look at them as a membership organization, maybe the social part of it has always been the biggest. If you look at it as a financial enterprise and as people investing literally their funds in this effort to um, reshape the federal judiciary, uh, you probably would tally it up a little differently, right? And you would say uh, it's part of this movement in the, the deregulation that began in the 1980s with Reagan and that these people saw as halted um, you know, during the Obama uh, administration and then the efforts they wanted to make there. And the justices are often the same ones, and some of them have more of a social outlook and less economic and regulatory and vice versa. And you know, the, the, the agenda is not totally compatible but they managed to submerge their differences, I think, and go forward. And, and they've been very successful in, in moving the court on both sets of issues. A lot of people are concerned about uh, gay rights and gay marriage. Uh, is that next on the agenda for the conservative bloc? I mean, I think it's hard to say. The, the experts I've talked to say that, you know, arguably it is undermined. The notion of uh, Obergefell, the decision... Um, saying that there was a federal constitutional right to same-sex marriage does seem like it would be jeopardized by the kind of rationale that we see laid out in this draft opinion. Uh, Alito talks a lot about history. It's so important whether this is a right that's been recognized through history. Well, you know, in the 1800s, nobody was talking about gay marriage and all sorts of unspeakable things were being done to people that were thought to be uh, gay. And so clearly there's no 
lengthy history through um, America. Um, there certainly is of people being gay, but not of their of that right being recognized by any government in in the United States and until obviously the twentieth, sometime in the twentieth century. So, so um, you know, when you look at those things, that's a right that would seem on paper to be in jeopardy. The question really is, is it in in reality in jeopardy? And I think the answer is, as far as I can tell. Not not at the moment. Like some people have pointed out, the Republican Party platform says we disagree with this decision, think it should be overturned. But I don't think there's a huge movement to try to overturn it, perhaps in some conservative states. Um, what I do think is that a decision like this one does give uh, power and backing to people who are looking to contain that right, uh, which means uh, giving more power to people who are religiously motivated, who say they don't want to do business with uh, folks that are having same-sex marriages or people that happen to be LGBT. So I think you see an empowerment of those sorts of decisions that could contain or cut back that right um, more than the likelihood. I don't see the conservative movement trying to make a big push in the next 15, 20 years to overturn gay marriage, in part because it's so popular. I mean, the, the way the polling numbers turned around on gay marriage um, as those issues went before the Supreme Court are stunning. Couldn't some of these things happen sort of accidentally if a case went before the Supreme Court, even if the public had accepted something? So I guess I would say I would take your logic on other issues like interracial marriage, which also that was a right that was not recognized in the 1700s and 1800s. That was something that was criminalized well into the 20th century. But it, I, I would agree with you that there's no appetite now on the left, on the right, or anything to, to, to make any movement on that area. Whereas when it comes to gay rights, I mean, right now in Florida, we have the don't say gay uh, issue, uh, the law that is being passed by Ron DeSantis and the Republicans there. So couldn't, as you alluded to, a very Republican state come out with a law that would be very restrictive of the rights of gay couples? In that case, make it up to the Supreme Court. And then you have these same five justices who would rather be ideologically right and pure on the court than respect stare decisis or even no matter how many people in the country support it. Couldn't that turn out to uh, jeopardize the the rights of LGBTQ people? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it could happen. I, my gut tells me that it would be more likely to happen uh, in an incremental way than to happen in the dramatic way that it appears that Roe v. Wade is going to um, go into the, the trash bin of history if this opinion is sustained over the next uh, couple of weeks. I think that it's just, um, I doubt that the appetite is present uh, for these justices to do to do that. We believe they've signed on to this opinion and, and the language in it that says this applies only to abortion and nothing else, which does seem very defensive. Like, well, who said, you know, that that it might apply to a bunch of other things? That's one of the fascinating things about seeing the draft opinion is all the defensive statements in it that seem to anticipate things that dissenters are likely to write that based on our reporting, they haven't actually written yet. And we're still waiting to see what they do to see the ways in which Alito and perhaps Alito's conservative colleagues tried to preempt um, those arguments in to see that in real time is kind of a unique access to the process that we haven't seen before. So I, I would say uh, I do think that you may feel they may feel empowered in other in other areas related to gay rights, but I don't think a sort of headlong run into Obergefell is very likely from this court, especially until we get at least some change in the lineup. Uh, of justices on the conservative side because they, they have pledged explicitly not to really spread this beyond Roe versus Wade. And so I think it would be easier for the court to do that if there was a little bit of a change in, in blood at the, at, the, uh, at the bench there. What are you anticipating in terms of the liberal justices dissent? You can imagine two themes that they might explore. One is a full-throated defense of unenumerated rights and why privacy is essential to the Constitution and, and really try to take on the legal arguments in Alito's draft, assuming that that remains the majority opinion. You could also imagine a full-throated uh, decrying of the politicization of the court, of the 
way in which the Federalist Society and conservative politicians have strategized to bring about the end of Roe v. Wade and appear to have succeeded, you know, uh, through the political process, sadly uh, taking the Supreme Court down with it. Do you do you think they'll go that far? I mean, you could argue and you imagine poor Chief Justice Roberts in the middle saying to the liberals, like, please don't don't tell everybody that the Supreme Court is uh, discredited by this. You know, try to keep it on a high plane, uh, please. Do you think they will keep it on a high plane? Um, I, n- not all of them. I don't think so. And I would predict that we'll have um, several dissents uh, that probably it could be the case that each of the liberal justices writes a dissent and they probably all join in each other's dissents. And if I had to guess what the themes would be like, I would say um, uh, Justice Breyer, I think, has historically expressed interest in this whole issue of the Ninth Amendment and enumerated unenumerated rights and, um, you know, whether it's important in our country to, to, to have the Bill of Rights reflect not only those rights that are listed, but that there are many other rights that Americans enjoy that are not there. And and the litany of other things that the court over the years has found that aren't specifically stated there. You know, some of the things that people take so much for granted, uh, not just the ones I've seen on the list related to this opinion, but others like, you know, the right that you have in a, a, an attorney if you're accused of a crime. That's not in the Constitution. You know, it's something that the court said and derived from other things like due process or what have you. Um, and so if you're really going to say if it's not in there, then you don't get it or we're just going to leave it up to any state legislature to decide what they want to do, um, that could be a pretty sweeping decision. So I suspect you'll see um, Breyer talk about things like that. Um, I think you probably will have um, Kagan engage more about the legal underpinnings of Roe and make more arguments on the legality. Um, and if you're looking for arguments about the um, the outrage and the perception of the court's reputation, the signal so far would be that you're most likely to get that from Justice Sotomayor because she's the one who couldn't help herself but at arguments to say, you know, how will the court survive the the stench of this on its reputation? So um, I don't think her language in an opinion uh, that would be responding to the court actually striking down Roe versus Wade is going to be any more reserved than her language was publicly at the arguments in December. Which of those arguments do you think would be the most productive in terms of the cause of the liberals, which is to to get abortion rights restored at some point quickly? Um, you know, I think the one that most people have have seized on at the moment is this parade of horribles argument that you're pulling on a string of the sweater here that if you pull on it so many other things that um, people may care about even if they don't care about abortion rights that much are at stake and i think that's part of why alito goes to such lengths um, in his opinion there's actually two separate sections where he says we're only talking about abortion we're not talking about but anything else <laughs> that's true but he also sort of can't help himself by defining unenumerated rights as only those that are deeply embedded in the history and tradition of of america and then he defines it based on popular expressions of the law you know supposedly these these constitutional amendments are meant to protect people from majoritarianism in a way alito is saying if the majority wasn't in favor of it it's not a it's not a right there's a sort of inconsistency sort of there. And of course, as people have pointed out, also an inconsistency given given the Second Amendment activism that the, the conservative justices have shown uh, in terms of an individual right to bear arms. One thing, this whole question of dissent is of interest to me, having written this book about John Marshall Harlan, who was known in his time and afterwards as the great dissenter, One of the most poignant sort of anecdotes about Harlan that I think came out of my research in the book was that he was a young man in Kentucky, a border state, fearing the civil, the coming civil war. Uh, He was in his early 20s, he was born in 1833. So from his early to late 20s, he was in politics, trying desperately to prevent a civil war from happening, to try to craft some sort of compromise. He felt that because of its geography in the middle of the country and also its politics being, you know, a combination of northern and southern sympathizers, that Kentucky would be destroyed by this war. And then the Supreme Court stepped in in Dred Scott and supposedly was going to settle the issue. You know, they were going to step in and settle. Went well beyond the facts of the case and, in fact, said 
black people have no rights, even free black people have no rights under the Constitution that white people could should ever respect. In Harlan's mind, that decision meant that his entire life's work up to that point in trying to craft compromises were impossible. It's like he suddenly knew the country is going to have a civil war. And it's all because of that sort of dreadful finality of the Supreme Court in, in recognizing that in our system, there is no recourse to the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. Now, his own career going forward, when he eventually got on the court himself, has some interesting sort of commentary on, on that. The lesson he took away from it is that it's very important for the court to get it right the first time, and that sort of emboldened him to, to issue very powerful dissents when he was serving on a, what was for its time a very conservative Supreme Court. And I say for its time because the notion of conservatism has changed. Uh, today's conservatives are not the same you know, prioritizing the same issues as conservatives were from 1877 to 1911 when he served, he served on the court. So one question that emerges is uh, out of Harlan's career is uh, the role of dissent. In his lifetime, it was thought that dissents really didn't matter and were just kind of justices making a kind of moral commitment. But in time, after his death, we saw that his dissents played a crucial role in things like overturning uh, the terrible Plessy v. Ferguson decision in uh, passing a constitutional amendment to allow an income tax after Pollock, which was a case in which the Supreme Court declared the income tax unconstitutional. His dissent, it, when the court declared the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional, actually persuaded his colleagues in his lifetime to turn things around. What do you think is going to motivate people on the dissent side? You know, what is the what is the dissent that's going to unlock this key era? We sort of stuck for the next 50 years. Uh, those who support abortion rights are stuck for the next 50 years with this decision. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody looking at this draft opinion uh, who's familiar with Supreme Court decisions would say dissent is pointless because this decision is sort of a hodgepodge of dissents that different justices on the conservative side have been issuing basically since Roe v. Wade was decided 49 years ago. So so much of this is cut, cut and pasted, maybe not literally, from those decisions. Some of it is literally taken from things that Justice Clarence Thomas uh, has written before or other justices that were critical of aspects of Roe versus Wade, including somewhat, curiously enough, um, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg being quoted in there. So you could view it as a victory for uh, dissents. And remember, Ginsburg was always very proud of her role um, doing that. She seemed almost happier to be in the underdog just, position. But just just to point out, I mean, it, it, it essentially took a comment that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made before she was on the Supreme Court. Her dissents were pretty consistently liberal, and she believed in her dissents in hopes that her dissents would— Totally. And even referred to Harlan, by the way, as an example of someone whose dissents uh, became law after his, uh, right. after his death. Right. But I'm just saying from the conservative's point of view, this is the triumph of a series of thoughtful and insightful dissents that um, conservative justices have been making for the last half century, and they now have the opportunity to flip them into the, the majority. So it doesn't signal that there's no point in dissent or that um, it's a futile effort. I mean, what the timeline is for some of these things to change, I mean, the way the Supreme Court is currently structured, assuming there's no reforms, it's really a generational uh, period that it takes for things to shift. I mean, we, we are going to have probably worth mentioning that we will have a new justice on the Supreme Court in October, right? Katanji Brown-Jackson is sitting there with her paperwork, I think, partially signed, um, waiting for Breyer to exit and for her to come on. So you'll have a new justice. It doesn't change the ideological balance of the court. Um, and it is possible that, you know, uh, President Biden might get more nominations to the court. Although, again, what that looks like um, with a Senate that might turn Republican possibly this fall, um, you know, who would he would nominate? Would you have a stalemate? And, and does this um, decision that we're expecting now, if it comes out in this form, just add further to the acrimony that has meant that the confirmation process is almost completely paralyzed? You know, unless your party has really solid control or at least some control of the Senate, um, as well as the White House, it, it, it seems quite possible the Senate will never put through another Supreme Court nominee uh, for a president of the opposing party, which is something I don't think you or I would have said 
20 years ago was even conceivable. And now you'd have to say, well, that's at least a 50-50 possibility. And does this, if they overturn Roe versus Wade, does that become even more likely? I would say probably probably does. But it'll be very curious to see uh, how people navigate that in the future. And Joe Biden might be um, the next one who has to try to do that. I agree with um, two of the things that you said about uh, this Alito opinion reflecting the triumph of dissent. I'd also point to Byron White's dissent in Roe itself, which is quoted all over the opinion. And interestingly, you know, law schools don't teach dissent at all. If you pick up a law school casebook where you go through all of the cases, dissents are never are never mentioned. And part of it is that the you know, because constitutional law professors want to teach the American system, and in the American system, it's not the law until the majority says it's the law. And no one no one recalls that there were other people in the last you know fifty or hundred years taking a different stance. Uh, it's probably time, uh, especially with this decision, to to elevate the role of dissent in the American legal process. The other thing you mentioned about the confirmation process, I think, is uh, is indisputably true, and that this result is is very related to changes in the confirmation process. One thing I've observed over the years is that. Uh, in fact, I, I know people, including uh, several lower court judges who had to go through the confirmation process, and they found it a personally devastating and terrible experience. It's like, you know, people are going over every last aspect of your of your life and your career, you know, obviously going back to high school, as we've seen in some of these Supreme Court confirmations. And... Um, it's this devastating moment when they feel like they're they're laid out, they're exposed. People are are turning on them for reasons that they consider egregiously unfair and personal. And my observation is that it turns them into ideologues, even if they were not ideologues to begin with, because they get this intense sense of who politically is behind them and who politically is against them. And it's just human nature that at the moment when you feel most vulnerable in your life, uh, when you see your entire reputation being held up for destruction or for endorsement, you you bond with the people who defend you and you loathe the people who have unfairly turned on you. And I think that if you're somebody even who's kind of moderate, conciliatory minded, not a not a political person, not somebody who believes in the two tribes, you know, whatever, that process makes you more ideological, you know. And I think some of these justices we're talking about on the conservative side who came through probably felt like, look, I owe my entire career and my place here to the conservatives who boosted me in the Federalist Society, to the members of Congress who promoted me, and uh, the president who chose me. And then during this terrible confirmation process, the people who had my back were the ones who wanted Roe out. The people who hated me were the ones that wanted Roe to stay. Therefore, I'm voting this way. Does that make sense to you, Josh? It does make sense to me. And I would say, as you may know, Peter, I, I do some work on the side on free press and um, transparency issues. And and I'm very interested in the court's decisions on those sorts of questions about important issues involving uh, libel law and access to information and things along those lines. And I really do have to wonder when justices, new justices emerge from that process. Um, They often seem to come with a fair amount of grievance, not only towards the other ideological camp, but in particular towards the press. And I, and I do wonder, uh, you know, we've seen already these signs within the last year or two that um, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch have both said they want to revisit or would be interested in revisiting New York Times versus Sullivan and whether it was uh, an appropriate thing to say that, you know, libel cases against public figures are going to have an extremely high um, burden of proof. And he's saying in, in some, they've both justices have said in some cases, maybe it's not not appropriate. And other fairly esteemed judges uh, on appeals courts are are following in step, but not ruling that way, but saying that's a very, very valid question. Does it make sense in the age of social media and all sorts of other um, issues like that that they raise uh, in this very important First Amendment, free speech, free press area? And I do wonder if someone comes through a process like that, feeling that they were completely unfairly treated and uh, were accused of dastardly acts that they didn't commit. 
it has to be the case when those sorts of issues go in front of the court that somewhere in the back of their mind they're feeling sympathy for the person who says, well, you know, I was terribly wronged by the press uh, and now I'm left with no recourse. And, and I do see that kind of thing. I won't repeat the words here, but I think people are familiar with what Justice Thomas said about how he felt about his confirmation hearing. Uh, and, and when he threw in the word high tech there, I think he was talking about the cameras uh, and the TV networks and everybody that he felt was part of that. And lo and behold, we find him, you know, leading the charge to knock down some of the most important protections um, for free speech that we have um, in the country at the moment. And I, I don't think those two things are, co are a coincidence. So I do think the way justices emerge from that process uh, has to impact their decisions on the court in a bunch of different areas. Now, you mentioned Clarence Thomas, and one of the things we found out recently about him is how his wife, Ginny Thomas, makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from various conservative activist groups, you know, being hired for whatever expertise she's bringing to the, as a con whatever, conservative ideological uh, organizer, I guess. And it's not too difficult to say, well, you know, all that money, which is going to help the, you know, Ginny and Clarence Thomas live a much more luxurious life than they would be able to live on the Supreme Court salary, uh, that that money may be intended to influence Clarence Thomas in another way to remind him and his wife, you know, who their friends are and who their enemies are and whatever. But there's no standard by which to judge that process by which she got that job because there are no ethical rules for Supreme Court justices. The Supreme Court itself, liberals and conservatives, have colluded essentially to not impose rules, ethical rules that apply to lower court judges to, to themselves. Now we're in a situation where the credibility of the Supreme Court, as you were saying earlier and we were talking about earlier, is, is in jeopardy. You know, it's a five to four decision that appears to be politically influenced in some ways. Is it time for the Supreme Court to impose a slate of ethics, ethical rules on itself? Yeah, I mean, I think they, they have to come up with some sort of um, mechanism like that. I mean, the whole situation with uh, Justice Thomas and, and with his wife, Jenny Thomas, I mean, I look, Peter, it goes beyond money, right? I mean, the, the issue is that Thomas was ruling on cases about communications involving the Trump White House. And then we find out later that, you know, one of the people texting then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was Ginny Thomas saying, you got to tell the president to keep fighting and so forth. So you have um, at least arguably a justice ruling on a dispute that in some way involves his spouse. Now, there are some technicalities here. It's not clear if those specific messages were necessarily in dispute, but she was awfully close to that case if she wasn't actually part of it. So to me, it goes beyond the issue of mere finances to, to you know, ruling directly on something where you're your spouse or some member of your family has a direct um, has a direct interest. Uh, I do think that this decision will add more fuel to the fire of all kinds of court reform efforts of a minor nature. Uh, the ones of a major nature, I don't think, are likely to go forward anytime soon, involving changing the terms of justices or adding more justices to the court. Um, President Biden has pretty much said that he doesn't support those kinds of changes. And he appointed sort of a figurehead, very strange figurehead commission with a task of reviewing the arguments on both sides, um, but making no recommendation about what to do, which has to be the best indicator ever of, of a blue ribbon panel that had no actual mission or SWAT, right? But, but I do think there are other changes like in the arena you're talking about with ethics, potentially requiring uh, cameras in the court that have been over the years building steam because of um, resentment about the secrecy around the court and resentment about the ethics practices and disclosures about justices taking hunting trips and all kinds of other conferences. And, you know, the courts usually engage in sort of incremental reforms with maybe a five to 10 year lag behind the outrage or whatever. And Congress usually wants them to move a bit faster. And I think it's possible that some of these proposals that have languished in previous years will get a new head of steam 
because you know some Republicans have been on board with them before, and this might interest more Democrats in them, and maybe they'll they'll go forward on that front. Isn't there a legal issue if Congress were to try to impose those standards on the court? The court's a co-equal branch of government and is going to claim its own right to regulate itself, certainly. I mean, they have, but they've imposed those rules on all the other judges other than the Supreme Court. And, and, you know, there are mechanisms where you could say if one justice should, is somebody urges that a certain justice be recused, that the other justices would make the decision. But there's been this history of autonomy in the court that the justices make their own decisions about when they're obligated to recuse from cases and that they don't even have to explain it. Uh, and, you know, that's been the case for as many years as I can remember. But I think justices have indicated, and the chief justice does these sort of annual statements about the judiciary where he's expressed some concern about these things. The, the Wall Street Journal did a series um, a few months or, or a year back pointing out that a bunch of cases were ruled on by federal judges, mostly at the lower level, but maybe a few at the Supreme Court, where their financial disclosures showed they had um, financial interests in the companies that, whose cases they were ruling on. And these cases should have been sent to other judges, and it didn't happen. And this was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And Roberts didn't say no big whoop. He said, yes, that that's unfortunate. We don't think any decisions were affected by these oversights. But it's uh, worrisome that that happened and we're going to strengthen the system. And a lot of people on the Hill are like, well, you're not going to strengthen it enough and we're going to give you a lot of strength in it some more. So I do think that, you know, th this tumult around the court and also to the extent people feel something untoward happened with with this opinion being released prematurely and just the general sense that the court um, is in, if not disarray, maybe a bit more disrepute than it was before will cause the reformers to pick up a little bit of steam. Well, let's talk about Roberts for a, a second. You know, just the contours of our conversation have been there. Five conservatives who have asserted themselves in uh, terms of making a very strong principled stance uh, in this case. Uh, and that there are three liberals who could be presumed to write very scorched earth dissents. Roberts's position may be more sympathetic with the conservatives, but overwhelmingly he's concerned for the institution of the Supreme Court, as you very smartly informed us. You know, it has literally affected his votes in other cases, his belief that the court should have a degree of finality when it decides things and moves on things. Is that Roberts' position? Is Roberts now sort of a lonely man on his own court, an island of one? Uh, or is there are there things that he can do to help to repair the court in the short term to kind of undo this perception that they are, first of all, elite and unpoliced, uh, and second of all, that they are, are prone to, to political manipulation? Well, Peter, I've been talking to a lot of people who watch the court and track the court closely about this over the last couple of days. Um, and, and I hear two different schools of thought. One is that Roberts is trying as best he can to be a steady hand on the tiller and that um, things are not as bad as it might appear because an opinion happened to leak out in a very, very contentious case. Uh, and this school of thought would say, you know, it isn't really a 6-3 court. When you look at many of the decisions that have come out over the last year or two, some of them are like 3-3-3 decisions. Um, yes, the liberals are tending to vote together, but there's another wing uh, on the right, which has uh, Justices Alito, uh, Gorsuch, and Thomas, who tend to take the most extreme conservative position in each case. And in many of the cases, um, Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett are kind of in play and they come up in different combinations and they side with each other in different ways and that that is sort of healthy normal operating of a moderate court and that there there's no great need to be alarmed that something is like terribly wrong and going off the rails um and the other people seem to think there's like a major breakdown of some sort at the court and that roberts is sort of unable to exercise any real degree of leadership is finding himself in such escapades as refereeing, you know, mask disputes between Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch. And now in, in this case, you know, finds himself sort of impotent, right? Because you have a six justice conservative majority, which he's ostensibly part of, but he doesn't agree on taking down Roe. 
but you know the justice chief justice being first among equals he doesn't really have any outright power to affect the decision and you know maybe he makes some effort to try to assign it a certain way but what's the point if he's the only justice in in the middle of the court in trying to say assign opinion to himself that no one else is going to join like uh, the ship the ship has sailed um, Donald Trump got three appointments to the Supreme Court and times have changed and the court isn't where it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago which is when Roberts um, came in as chief justice and so I'm hearing dueling arguments maybe the truth lies somewhat in the middle I doubt that the whole thing has completely broken down but I happen to think that the conservatives uh, probably are fairly annoyed with Roberts uh, and are bearing a number of grievances. Remember, it's not just Obamacare. I think we mentioned that earlier in the show, but there's been a, a bunch of other decisions that are closely watched, especially among um, legal experts uh, on issues like uh, Trump's effort to repeal the Dreamers program that Obama had set up, where Roberts uh, crossed over and and um, you know and joined with the other side. So he he's had a series. Uh, of decisions um, not strictly involving uh, Obamacare, where he didn't, where he's taken a more moderate view that annoyed other members of the court. And many of those cases continue to resound in other disputes that are, are keep coming before the court. So it's not lost on the conservatives that he has, in their view, been unfaithful to their cause. Now, one one facet of this recent era in the Supreme Court, which has been very dominated by people's views on, on Roe, even though they could never mention the word Roe, you know, it's like their philosophy on substantive due process or unenumerated rights or however you couched it, uh, is that politicians have been essentially disqualified from serving on the court. So anybody who's had to run for office has taken some sort of position that touches on abortion rights, but touches more directly than some of these uh, airy legal theories do. And so it was presumed that they would be sort of unconfirmable because they were a a person who had already laid down a marker uh, on that issue. In history, we used to have a lot of politicians on the court. And you mentioned Sandra Day O'Connor somewhat approvingly that she was a centrist justice because her background was as uh, state Senate president in Arizona. Uh, John Marshall Harlan, who I wrote about, uh, actually had a career in politics. He was the attorney general of of Kentucky, and he came from a political family in Kentucky. Even though he was, you know, 80 percent a man of the law, he had experience going out there and talking to people and trying to build coalitions and trying to get elected. And it's often thought that that creates both a a somewhat moderating influence on a person. uh, And also it it keeps them in touch with the stakeholders of some of these Supreme Court decisions. By contrast, the people on the court right now, uh, essentially almost to a fault, almost without, with Sonia Sotomayor being the only exception really that I can see, People on the court were groomed from a very early age to have either a brief stint in academia or a brief clerkship on a court, then at a very young age being put on the lower court bench so that they could then be appointed to the Supreme Court when they were in their 40s and served for a really long time. It's often noted that people who come from that kind of like hermetically sealed background, you know, see these legal issues as like a faculty lounge debate. You know, they're standing arguing with each other uh, in wing chairs and never actually meet any of the people who have to be affected by these decisions. Whereas the politicians of yore, you know, knew knew that routine like the back of their hand. Do you think that this moment that we're passing through with the likely overturning of Roe v. Wade will make it politically palatable to put politicians on the court or even create pressure to have justices who have more, you know, real world experience, even people as practicing lawyers? None of these justices seem to have ever tried a case, let alone, you know, uh, you know, lived a real life. Uh, Yeah. So that's interesting, Peter. I mean, I do think Many of them do have a little more experience in one area, which is a bunch of them managed to pass through the White House Counsel's office at some point on their <laughs> trip up there. You yeah, know, I, that's I'm not exactly of, the grassroots. I of agree the with you completely. But I'm just say, adding uh, one more bullet to their resume uh, that I'm sure makes them look 
um, very solid for the court. Uh, you know, Elena Kagan did that. Uh, I believe Roberts um, may have had the same experience, Kavanaugh, people like that. So, so they have a little bit of experience in political law, but you're quite right that they don't really have experience with uh, law on the streets even, or with legislation and so forth, increasingly uncommon. Um, one of the things that did come up with um, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's uh, confirmation hearings was uh, that she and Sotomayor would be the only two that had actually been trial court judges. Uh, and that that's, you know, uh, I guess it's still part of the legal system, right? But it is a little bit closer to the the ground where you're actually deciding actual cases involving actual criminals and victims getting in front of you, defendants and so forth. It's amazing, but many of the justices have never actually tried these sort of cases, certainly have presided over a case like that. And then they're they're trusted to resolve these, um, these disputes. And so that'll mean two trial court uh, judges there. You know, it's a different kind of experience than you're talking about with Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, being a legislator and understanding the process of, of, of herding cats and, um, you know, the issues that the Supreme Court gets into time and time again about redistricting and so forth, which is a very, very political process of horse trading in most seats, in most states, I should say. So, you know, I, I do think that it's possible you'll see a revisiting of that, although my sense of recent Supreme Court nominations was that there is still an effort to try to get the, the shortest most contained, most limited, acceptable resume for somebody to go up um, for confirmation hearings so that there really is so little to dig into that could in any way be surprising. There is some kind of ideological litmus test that is um, uh, that is imposed both on the right and on the left. And as long as the person clears that, which can be through pledges from their um, friends and allies and other people that have clerked for them and so forth. And the White House gets the thumbs up, uh, whether it be from liberal legal activists or the Federalist Society or the Heritage Foundation, uh, they're good to go. And then the object of the game is to um, try to um, muddle everything and present it as in- inconsequential as possible so the other side can't land any punches. And we saw this sort of break out in a crazy kind of way in the Uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings where suddenly her sentencing of about a dozen criminal defendants during her years as a trial court judge became the very center of the hearing, uh, you know, and and in a very distorted way because what she'd done was basically consistent with the way perhaps 70% of judges have handled these sorts of cases, mostly involving child pornography uh, over the last couple of decades, including scores and scores of judges that both Republicans and Democrats had put on the bench and elevated to higher positions without any discussion whatsoever of this subject. And it suddenly became the central issue of the hearing. And I found myself writing article after article about specific cases and why she went departed from the sentencing guidelines. So, um, you know, the name of the game in the confirmation hearings is to try to lay a glove on the on the nominee. And the name of the game of the people in the White House and the people that back the nominee is to make that impossible. And so I, I don't know if politicians stand any better chance in the future because um, just because the court might be exposed as a more political institution, because I still think that dynamic of trying to to smooth the way through the process is going to be present. And a judge with a sh- sort of a, a, a simple resume, maybe not a short one, but at least a simple one, um, is the easiest kind of nominee to get over that hurdle. Let me, uh, let me throw an idea at you, uh, Josh. Most political pundits think that we're about to see the Republicans take over Congress, both the Senate and the House. It's not clear at all, but that's that's the prediction you're hearing out there. There's also the question of whether Mitch McConnell, if he were the majority leader in the Senate, uh, would do what he did under President Obama when Scalia died and uh, refuse to hold a hearing if there were ever a a court opening under the theory that uh, if Congress and the president are from different parties or the majority of the Senate and the president are from different parties, uh, you know, let's let's hold that seat open until after the next election and 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 see what happens. Yet, obviously, if there were an opening in the early part of the next uh, congressional term, that means holding the seat open for two years, basically. Uh, and McConnell would be under some pressure to kind of fill it. Would that be a moment for Joe Biden 
old Senate institutionalist, friend of McConnell's, to sit down, the two of them, and say, let's let's pick someone really different. You know, let's pick someone who's acceptable to both sides based on their life experiences, their morality, their credentials in the law, uh, but not obsess about uh, their position on Roe v. Wade. Is that at all plausible that there could be some kind of a, you know, let's try to repair this institution rather than perpetuate all the bad stuff that's been going on in this confirmation process in recent decades? Um, Well, I'd like to say yes, Peter, but I think in all candor, I would probably have to say no. I mean, look, a a small scale version of that happened just uh, about six years ago, right, with Obama and and Merrick Garland when he had this unexpected opportunity to nominate someone to the Supreme Court after um, Justice Antonin Scalia died very um, unexpectedly. It shouldn't have been unexpected because he had a lot of health issues that we didn't know at that time because the court isn't terribly transparent about these things, but it was unexpected and suddenly he was gone and uh, Obama found himself in an election year with the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice and he goes and picks this judge in his 60s, I believe, to serve on the court, which is very strange because uh, the, the trend in recent years have been to pick people in their 40s because you think they might be able to spend three or four, maybe conceivably more years, more decades on the court. And he goes for Garland, who's a fairly vanilla uh, figure, very well respected across Washington, um, has a unusually lengthy track record um, of opinions and so forth. And they're fairly moderate down the middle um, kind of decisions. And uh, in fact, drew some complaints from the left that, you know, he's not a sufficiently um, liberal uh, nominee. And of course, as we all know, the nomination went nowhere. You know, McConnell and um, Chuck Grassley, who was then the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, decided not only they weren't going to take Garland, they weren't going to take any nominee and they weren't going to hold even a hearing on the nomination. And so, you know, I guess that uh, what you're proposing would be to put that uh, kind of strategy on steroids and, and come up with an even more appealing, more centrist nominee and see if the court could be won over. I just I guess I don't think in this era that we live in of ideological polarization and social media that the uh, wings, the ideological wings of each party um, that have unusual um, sway over the decisions in this area because of money and and for other and activism and for other reasons, I don't think you could persuade either of the ideological extremes to accept that kind of an, an outcome. I mean, maybe you have some names you can think of that you're going to give me that would um, that would fit the bill and would you know um, be uh, approved by acclamation on the floor of the U.S. Senate. But I don't have any <laughs> sitting here on my list that I could say will go through. I mean, even these uh, titans of business that people used to all look up to, you know, now when they go, they're going to get in and buy this or buy that. Suddenly it's hugely controversial. I don't know anyone in the public eye who doesn't seem to be polarizing at the moment. Well, one one anecdote I know of that would uh, <laughs> that would confirm what you said is Josh Blackman, who, you know, is a, a conservative law professor who who frequently tweets and writes a lot, was part of uh, a group that was trying to put together a nonprofit uh uh, think tank that was supposed to be non-ideological, straight down the middle kind of think tank uh, at his law school in Texas. And they decided they wanted to name it after an eminent jurist or lawyer or somebody big figure in the law. And they went through, you know, person after person, and they were being vetoed by one side of it. I can't possibly be that one, can't possibly be that one. You know, you told me this story because I was working on uh, the book about John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter, the sole dissenter in Plessy v. Ferguson. And he said that uh, the only person that they, the only two people that they agreed on were Harlan, because he's respected on on the left and the right. You know, conservatives consider him an originalist. Liberals say that he was a compassionate man who saw the human uh, dimensions of cases. Uh, And Robert Jackson, who had been the prosecutor at Nuremberg and was viewed as this exalted uh, human rights figure who, during his relatively short uh, tenure on the Supreme Court, was also known for writing some very elegant opinions. 
But according to Josh Blackman, only two people in the entire history of uh, law and jurisprudence are acceptable to, to both sides. Uh, that's the state of the country right now. And uh, as, as you've suggested, with this looming decision in the Dobbs case coming, it, it seems, unfortunately, that it's, it's only going to get worse. So it does seem like we are headed in for a period here where it's not only going to get worse, but uh, it's going to be worse in a way that is directed specifically at the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court has been always the focus of that ideological polarization. There are a lot of other decisions made in government uh, over the last uh, many years that have angered people on one side or the other. They weren't always coming from the court. And a decision of this magnitude that's going to impact the lives, if it comes out in the form that we currently expect it to come out, going to impact the lives of tens of millions of people. And if it's it remains on the books for, for years, hundreds of millions of Americans um, is going to put the spotlight on the court in a way that's very uncomfortable. And I'm not really sure that it makes the very, very tricky process of structuring the court and placing justices on the court uh, any simpler to have that kind of white hot spotlight on what's happening there. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It's been a fascinating week. Uh, and uh, I love this conversation. We should do it more often. Happy to do it, Peter. Let's do it again sometime. And that's our show. Follow Josh Gerstein and Alex Ward's reporting at politico.com. This episode was produced by Kara Tabor and Brooke Hayes. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Mike Zappler is Politico's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Peter Canellis. Remember to look at my book, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. And thanks for listening.